Hey there, this is Nick Hanauer. You've reached the magic voicemail box where you can leave me a question for my Ask Me Anything episode. All you have to do is state your name, where you're calling from, and your question. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the ways we got to the situation we're in, Nick, is that uh, people didn't think a lot about how the economy worked. They just sort of accepted the graphs that were in their Econ 101 textbook and the uh, memes and narratives that were passed on in the political sphere. And what makes this so exciting and uh, that it's really what drives us in doing this is actually getting people to challenge those uh, orthodox assumptions and think through the economy again in a creative and innovative way. That's right. And, you know, economics affects everyone's life so much part of the point of the podcast is to democratize the discussion of it to give more people more facility for understanding it challenging orthodoxy and helping think it through yeah letting people uh confidently embrace the idea that economics is a choice yep and uh we get to choose the kind of economy we want And uh, if you want to help us in that, listeners, one of the best ways you can do is not just talk about our podcast, but uh, get your friends and families and co-workers to tune in and subscribe to Pitchfork Economics. And again, if you do have questions, please call our number and leave a message, 731-388-9334. That's 731-388-9334. Nine three three four. So we're we're really excited to answer your questions. Hey everyone, this is JJ Keller. I'm calling from Buffalo, Washington, just about 20 minutes north of Seattle. My question is a little bit about how you think about the democratic socialist movement going on. Obviously, you share some things in common in terms of universal health care and higher taxes and things like that. But do you want a fundamental shift in the economy or do you want it just to work better for people? I guess kind of the, the Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren, you know, tear it down versus, you know, tweak it to make sure it's working for people. How do you think about that debate going on in the party? Thanks. So uh, since I'm the one who sometimes hangs out with socialists, yes. uh, let me start uh, trying to answer your question, JJ. I would say that clearly we end up in the same policy place as some of the DSAers. We support some of the same policy objectives, but we get there, we get to that place from a different theoretical frame. While a lot of the policies are the same, we're not socialists. We're not starting from a socialist position in how we get to things like universal health care. We think there's a market argument for universal health care. We think there's a market argument for free or affordable higher education. Yeah. 
we think there's a market argument for higher wages, stronger unions, uh, stronger overtime protections, a higher minimum wage. Correct. We don't think these things are against markets and capitalism. We think they're for it. Yeah. Right. So the difference is really philosophically and theoretical. We view classical Marxism uh, somewhat in the same way that we view neoclassical economics. There's some truth there, yeah. and they, they both make important contributions, but the models are wrong. The underlying assumptions are wrong, and so on and so forth. And so, I mean, I, I really have never seen anything in Bernie Sanders uh, or Elizabeth Warren's policy agendas that uh, are in any material way tearing down capitalism or the economy. On the contrary, virtually all of the things they propose will make the overall economy stronger. Now, very rich people are squealing a lot about these proposals. And that's a good thing. That, that's a good thing because those people's narrow material interests may be compromised by these policies, but that in no way implies that that's bad for the overall economy. As we've said many times on the pod, confusing what's good for capitalism generally with what's good for a few capitalists narrowly is where where essentially neoclassical economics, neoliberalism went wrong. Right. Uh, hey, everybody. Um, my name is Bill Eisnoggle. I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia. Wondering if you could please explain the relationship between MMT and debt. Uh, if we print money into existence, why does the debt grow? And other than inflation, what concerns should we have about increased debt for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren? And uh, maybe part of the explanation here could include who holds the debt, and what does that mean for us as a country? Thank you very much. So Bill from Richmond, Virginia, with a question about MMT and debt and so on and so forth. First, let me say that we did do an entire episode devoted to MMT with uh, Dr. Stephanie Kelton, who's one of the leading uh, thinkers on this subject. Uh, but, you know, I think the place to start on this issue of modern monetary theory and debt and the impacts of it on the future and on our children and so on and so forth is to recognize that we already are doing MMT. Well, we're operating as, <laughs> as if, if it, we believe in it, MMT. MMT. Republicans have for years. Exactly. Because we, we, we have uh, approximately $17 trillion to $16 trillion worth of public debt, um, 75% of GDP. Uh, and... Um, and so far, so good <laughs> in the sense that uh, it hasn't, uh, this debt has not destroyed the economy. And um, that, th that reality seems to reinforce the basic position of people who believe in modern, modern monetary theory that it's not the debt itself which is the threat, it's, it's the inflation that it may cause right, which, by creating too much money. Right. And, and to understand the reason why it would create inflation is um, whether you are stretching the capacity of the economy to produce the goods and services that right. people are demanding with the money that you're pumping into the economy. So uh, the point being that 
its question on something like free uh, college tuition, it's only inflationary in the university level if we don't have enough slots. We haven't invested in creating enough slots at the universities to teach all the people that might want to go. Um, As uh, Stephanie Kelton has said, Yes, we can give everybody a free pony if we create enough ponies. Correct. And so, um, you know, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, we obviously are operating today in a way um, that is consistent with MMT. The Republican tax uh, cut of last year effectively increased the federal deficit by one point three or one point five trillion dollars. Um, the shame of it is, is that we could have used that 1.3 or 1.5 trillion dollars in super productive ways. It would have actually benefited a lot of people and made the future of the country stronger. We could have, for instance, eliminated all college debt. We could have built infrastructure, used that money to build infrastructure. Uh, we could have done a, a thousand things that would have been really, really great for citizens. And instead, we gave almost all that money to rich people in the form of a tax uh, tax break. Uh, and that so now that money will be converted into um, private Pica- jets. Yeah, private jets and Picassos that will hang on walls instead right. of jobs and investment and or, or, or just, tax or just tax re- debt debt relief for ordinary citizens right. which would have been far more productive so you know we're we are not uh, debt debt hawks we think that debt uh, can play a constructive role in building an economy we what we hate is wasting uh, increased debt on just shoveling money into the pockets of very wealthy people who didn't need the money in the first place Hey, Nick. My name's Annie, and I'm from Pensacola, Florida. And I have a question about the impact a UBI would have. I'm not completely sold on the concept of universal basic income, and only specifically because of this reason. If, you know, Andrew Yang were president, and we all of a sudden got our little freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, what would prevent my landlord from increasing rent $1,000 or the local college from creating some nonsense fee that's, you know, a $4,000 a semester effectively eating up the entire benefit of the UBI. What would prevent the market from just swallowing this money? Because we know that the people at the top have an endless capacity for greed and make up BS for us to pay all the time. Would a UBI have to come hand in hand with rent and price control? I'm not really sure if if that would be much of a benefit or whether it would just drive inflation. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate everything you do. Um, enjoy listening to your podcast. Annie, I really don't think that we need to pair, um, if we did UBI, with rent control uh, because I don't believe that rent would rise any more than would the price of popcorn or iPhones. They are not linked. Now, obviously, the more affluence there is in a society, the more people who are well-paid, the more pricing room companies have, but they still are competing for your dollars, right? The same apartment in a city with lots and lots of people who can afford to pay for it uh, can't charge more than an alternative apartment that is better and cheaper. And so the downward pressure on prices created by competition in a market economy should 
continue to keep the price of apartments and popcorn and iPhones low. I mean, you know, Apple can't charge more for iPhones in an affluent market because there will be an alternative uh, phone available to you that you will prefer if if it's better and cheaper, even if you have more money. I absolutely don't think so. Yeah, I, I see. I I don't think UBI is different from any other source of income. Yeah, uh, you don't have to have rent control because we did a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Yeah, you don't have to have rent control. Uh, simply because uh, workers are getting a larger share of productivity increases. Right. And look at it from the converse. Even in a climate of stagnant wages for 40 years, rents in most cities have gone through the roof. Right. So that's, when that's people, a supply <laughs> issue. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so when people didn't have money, rents went up. Uh, it, but it certainly doesn't follow that rents would go up more because people did have money. I mean, they, you know, the supply right. and demand dynamics were what drove the drove the rent prices increases. Hey, Pitchport. Cody from South Carolina. In episode Whatever Happened to the Middle Class, Heather Boucher mentioned Boeing and the opportunity it provided her father 40 years ago compared to now. Regardless of government policy, what factors and metrics might a company use if it wanted to be the ideal Pitchfork economics company? Thank you. So, Cody from South Carolina, that's a really interesting question about how a company could be the ideal, <laughs> the ideal employer from a Pitchfork's economics point of view. And it, it, I think that the the ideal corporate behavior is not to act unilaterally to try to make the country better but to be part of a movement to raise standards everywhere. Because it's simply not realistic for one company in a low-wage industry to pay all of its workers uh, a living wage and provide them with great benefits. It's almost certainly not sustainable, right? If, if your competitors are paying $7.25 an hour to do a thing, if you pay 15 it will be very hard to be price competitive in the market that you serve and you are unlikely to survive. I mean, I think that we should expect business leaders to be moral and to do the right thing, but hoping that a few good ones will save us from neoliberalism isn't realistic. We need business leaders to lead the charge in raising standards for all businesses, and when we do that, then we'll have an economy that works for everybody. Yeah, I think I think Boeing speaks actually also to a heuristic that CEOs should use, which is that your employees are an asset, not a cost. Uh, but Boeing was a was a company that was essentially run by engineers for many, many years. And uh, they understood how important their workers were because these were people who worked their way up through the system. And so you had, yes, a very high wage workforce and a very strong union, but it was one of the most productive workforces in the company at all levels. They had uni they have unionized engineers, those unionized yeah. professionals, and that's that's unusual. And it paid off huge for Boeing. Boeing was incredibly successful. And then uh, since that uh, McDonnell Douglas merger and essentially the bean counters at McDonnell Douglas took over, changed the corporate culture, moved the uh, headquarters out of Seattle and into Chicago so they wouldn't have to be bad corporate citizens here and then engaged on a program of trying to destroy and disempower their unions, 
that's where all of Boeing's recent troubles have come from. The the problems making money on the 787, uh, the problems with the uh, 737 MAX, which were were clearly design flaws that, uh, well, if an engineer was running that company, that would have not gotten through to production. Yeah. So, you know, when you have a company that understands that the company is people, they're the ones creating all the value. That is your most important asset. That's where all the innovation comes from. That's where all the labor comes from. There's a lot to learn from the mechanics and the machinists just working on the line. You end up with a better and more robust company. But when you're focused on maximizing shareholder value one quarter at a time, you end up with the kind of problems that Boeing has seen. My name is Andrew. I'm from Chicago. I'm in traffic right now talking to my speakerphone. Forgive me for not having scripted this out, but my question involves stock buybacks. It seems to me that there would be a legitimate use of a stock buyback, and that would be to exit Wall Street. If you had a company and you were raising funds via an IPO, but then eventually you wanted to take your company back private, wouldn't you need to buy those shares back? I guess that's all I've got. Talk to you later. So what you're describing, Andrew, would be a leveraged buyout. No, uh, well, well, or, or I, you're taking I, a company private. Yeah, you're just taking your company back private, and by all means, you know that is a legitimate use of stock buybacks, and companies occasionally do that. They go public and then decide that they don't want to be public anymore, and they buy all their shares back. Right, totally legit thing to do. More, more common would be an acquisition. That's yes. what companies do when they acquire another company. They acquire all of their shares. That's right. Maybe a little less legitimate. <laughs> Some in, sometimes in many cases. Yeah, but for sure, the nefarious part of stock buybacks is, you know, just this, you know, endemic practice of just issuing more shares uh, for options and then buying them back on the open market with the company's cash to boost the stock price and wash out the dilution. And again, if it would, wouldn't be a bad thing if one company did it, the problem is that it's a trillion dollar problem now and it's just an awful use of the value that our economy creates. That money could be used so much more effectively if it was being invested in workers, paid as wages or um, used for R&D. And, right. and that's what we should encourage. Hi, Nick. This is Anders. I'm from just outside of Portland, Oregon, and I am just leaving a business meeting that happened at a restaurant and was talking to our accountant about how much tip I should leave when I'm using the company credit card. And that got us into a big discussion about tipped workers and whether or not we as consumers should be subsidizing their wages. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that. There's one restaurant in Portland here that has multiple tip lines for front of house and back of house, which as a consumer drives me nuts because I don't know how much each of those workers are getting paid, what their effort is. I have no way of knowing how I should divide my tip. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on any or all of that. Thanks again for a great program. Hey, Anders from Portland. You asked a really interesting question or a series of questions around tips and restaurant workers and 
uh, norms of behavior. And, and, yeah. and so we're going to try and tease your question apart in the best possible way that we can. Right. Because there's, there's actually a theoretical response to your question and a practical real world right. response to your question. Let's start with the theoretical, Nick, which is, my God, tipping is such a stupid norm. It is a stupid norm. There's no transparency. It's bizarre. What industry is yeah. it that, that you don't actually pay your workers and you expect yeah. the, the customer to, to throw a little extra to make sure that they yeah. can pay the rent? That is such a dumb way of running a business. It is. It's you an, don't tip your the, the airline pilots after right. you get off the flight. Just, well, <laughs> yeah. no, you'd want to tip. You'd want to slip them a 50 beforehand yeah. just to make it's sure like that you crazy. land okay. No, that's tip, crazy. Tip, tipping is, is totally nuts. It's a and as a consumer, there's nothing I hate more than dishonest pricing. Yeah. When I see a price on the menu, I want to know that that is the price, not the price, plus gratuity, <laughs> plus some stupid living wage yeah. service charge, yeah. plus tax, plus, I don't know what, a bread All, charge? Yeah. What are and you going to throw in there right. on top of it? And the tipping convention in the United States was a ruse created by the restaurant industry to socialize the costs of labor. And there's another thing that's really worth mentioning about tips, which is something that I really learned in my early work on the minimum wage from um, lots of the women who we helped organize with, which is that there's this massive problem around tipping with women, right? Yeah, with that, that sexual, sexual harassment. harassment and tipping is a really, really prevalent and terrible problem. And we should right. just probably eliminate the whole thing. In the meantime, in the meantime until it's <laughs> until I, it's eliminated. I never t tip less than 20%. Exactly. Even in Seattle, where everybody's making, uh, well, $15, $16 minimum wage, but in the restaurant industry here, you can't hire you know somebody for uh, Probably $15. Probably less than $20 or something R like that. Right, so anyway, so the second part of the answer to the question that we wanted to get to is, can the restaurant industry survive without this ridiculous tip convention? And the answer is, hell yes, they can. We're doing it in Seattle and a bunch of other places around the country. Uh, and indeed, you know, Restaurants can survive by paying their workers enough to get by without tips. Like in and most of the world. Like like in, in, in the entire rest of the world, right? <laughs> they have restaurants in Germany and you don't tip there. Um, uh, but the third thing that you said, which was, which was um, intriguing, uh, it, uh, wrong, if we may, <laughs> may say so, but definitely reflects a kind of very prevalent and understandable neoliberal thinking, which is that people who work in restaurants don't have good jobs, and if they worked harder or were better educated, they go get better jobs, and that should be it. And we strongly object to that line of reasoning because the truth is that restaurant workers are not trained less than, for instance, auto workers from the 60s or 70s. They're not creating less value. The difference is that they just get a smaller split of the value created in that industry or enterprise. Because they're not unionized. Exactly. <laughs> and there's no earthly reason why every single restaurant worker in America couldn't earn enough to get by without food stamps or government assistance. In fact, we should have a hospitality industry that people uh, can make a career out right. of. And I think what you would find if you got to know some restaurant workers is in indeed many of them really love that industry. They right. love being waiters and they love 
being cooks and they love being bartenders and stuff like that. And, and if you ever if you ever worked in in a restaurant, you'll notice that a busy restaurant is carefully choreographed. Yeah. That if the dishwasher isn't doing their job, the the whole thing can grind to a halt. Right. You need and, everybody. It's these are not unskilled or yeah. low skilled jobs. These yeah. are just. Uh, traditionally poorly paid, poorly paid, <laughs> poorly paid jobs. jobs. Essentially, yeah. there are no bad jobs. There are just bad employers. Exactly. <laughs> and so we definitely want to create an economy where there is no industry that exists where people who work in it full time can't get by and lead dignified middle class lives. Indeed, I would suggest that if there is a business or an industry that can't operate well, being held to that standard, then it shouldn't exist. Right. That's and not capitalism. That's socialism for the rich. Right. So the bottom line is never don't tip. And when you're using the company credit card, tip even higher. Why not? Your boss is paying for it. He's not going to know. It's not line itemed. Uh, I'm like the only one in the office, Nick, who doesn't have a company credit card. <laughs> for very good reason, obviously. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for all those really cool and interesting questions. If you have a question for Nick on any economic issue, please give us a call and leave us a message at 731-388-9334. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.